Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Hello, welcome to another episode. And normally I would say at this point where we have amazing guests from around the world. Well, today that's not the case. Today you've got just me. And I thought I, I would record a, a, an episode for you that was just me rambling on about how I see the world of leadership and where I see it going. And I thought, it, I couldn't have thought of a better time to do this than recording it as the first episode for a brand new year. So before we go any further, I want to wish you all a very, very happy 2024. I hope this year brings you all the success and happiness, whatever that means for you uh, that you desire. And I also hope that it is the year that you see your leadership journey grow, that you see the people around you who work with you, or maybe the clients who receive your services uh, have a better quality as a result of your, your transformed leadership journey. Because, hey, listen, at the end of the day, for me in leadership, you know, I've had like over 30 years worth of experience in leadership. I have come to realize that leadership is never an end goal. It is something that we're evolving into every single day. We constantly move forward. We have to learn new ways of doing things. We have to learn new ways of being. We have to dig down deep inside of ourselves sometimes to really explore the deepest potential that we have and to become ultra self-aware. I was having a conversation with somebody only a couple of days ago and and this person had been a leader for some years. And I remember that this person was talking about EDI. And now, I don't know, you may have heard my views on EDI, my simplistic views on EDI, uh, equity, diversity and inclusion, is this, that we have got stock in a rhetoric uh, when it comes to equity, diversity, and inclusion. And I think whatever we're stuck in the trench of this rhetoric, it becomes very easy to actually um, move forward and put into action. And we see this with so many organizations and so many industries where they all say the right thing. They all say the word, they all espouse words that, that sound really good and that they are really committed. And I'll be honest with you, most people are committed to the concept of equality and diversity and inclusion, where everybody has a fair share, uh, an opportunity to uh, express their thoughts or to move forward in an organization or as a result, as a result of the deliveries that we provide as organization and as leaders. But what happens is with EDI, I think many, many leaders see it as a very hard to do sort of option. And 
So because we feel it's so difficult, we feel it's uh, something that uh, that we're going to struggle with, what we do, we, 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 we ask ourselves, so what is EDI? You know, what does diversity actually mean? And our go-to is, uh, are these protected characteristics that we are often uh, told, these these uh, sort of uh, sectionalities, these protected characteristics, these homogenous groups that we are told are underrepresented. So, you know, from race to sexual orientation to gender to age and so forth and so on. Now, I've always had an issue with that. And I have spent the last 40 years involved in EDI work purely by the fact that I was a brown person in a white environment, predominantly white environment. So for some strange reason, I became an expert. And because it wasn't moving forward at the pace that I needed it to move forward, I I put myself at the forefront uh, voluntarily uh, helping the police service to become much more equal uh, and much more sort of aware of the differences of the people around. Now, mine was predominantly around the whole race culture uh, because that's that's my that's my experience. Uh, and as a consequence of that, I you know I was a founder member of the Black Police Association movement and uh, locally, and then I was chair several times over, and then I I became the vice president of the National Black Police Association, and that's when I had the opportunity of sitting down with senior politicians, home secretaries, chief police officers from around the country to help them to understand what the landscape was like and what the future could 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 be like. And so I had that opportunity to influence strategy. But even then, I don't think I was as aware as I am right now. When I look back, uh, the the discussion was predominantly around representation as opposed to what I think diversity is now. And for me, diversity is far beyond representation. Representation is important. I mean, who wants to join an organisation where they can't see people like them in senior positions to give them the confidence to know that um, they also have that opportunity of getting to that level? But representation in of itself doesn't mean that uh, we're going to change the culture of an organisation. It doesn't mean that we are necessarily going to move forward into a healthy organisation. And yet here we are. This is where we're stuck in this rhetoric of representation. Uh, And when we talk about EDI, and I hear so many senior people, senior leaders from all sorts of industries, including the police service uh, that I was uh, proudly a member of, still talking about things like representation, as if that's the the one thing that's going to resolve so many ills. And it's not. Because representation in of itself does not necessarily uh, translate to a change of culture. And you might wonder, what am I talking about? Well, here's an example. So imagine if you went out to hire um, more diverse, demographically diverse people, and predominantly you, specifically, you want to get more uh, uh, people of colour into your organisation more black and ethnic minority people into your organisation. So you thought to yourself, well, where's the best place to recruit more quality Bain people? And you, But you went to the same places, targeting a different sector of that community, but in the same places geographically or sociologically or philosophically even uh, that you would have done to recruit any other candidate. But you end up recruiting more black and brown faces. Now, they look different. But because they come from the same geography, demography, philosophy, they're going to say the same thing. 
So what has really changed in your organization? Has the direction of travel in your organization changed? Probably not. We see this in politics. In the last few years, we've seen, you know, the government in the UK having a whole tranche of rainbow of diversity when it comes to divert when it comes to demography. You, we look at them physically, and we can see that there's a lot of different. There's a lot of women on there. Uh, there's uh, LGBTQ represented in there. There's uh, people of color represented in there. And indeed, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom right now is a is a, is a person of Indian heritage. Does that change anything? Does it change the rhetoric of the Tory party or of the government of the day? No, not really. In, in my view, in my experience, they tend to talk with the same sort of tone, ideas, and philosophies. So nothing really has changed. And there you have a, a an organisation that is very re representative. So for me, representation is a part of the solution But beyond that solution, we have to move towards something else. We have to create an environment uh, where people from a wide set of diverse thinking uh, is feel that they can come into an organization and still be able to equally contribute to the conversations in that organization. Think about it. If we had an organization where we could attract people with diverse thoughts, experiences, pathways in life, uh, sociological backgrounds, um, social classes, if we could attract these kind of people into our organization and allow them to contribute to the ideas of that organization, would that change our organization? And my argument is, yes, of course it would. That's cognitive diversity. Cognitive diversity is where it's not a commitment to recruiting more of this and more of that and improving the percentage of A, B, C, D. It's about creating a culture that attracts, naturally attracts people who are different in so many ways beyond these uh, protected characteristics, where we create an environment where every single person in that organization feels valued, seen, heard and appreciated. So I was having this conversation with, with somebody who's a senior leader, been a senior leader for a number of years, and they were really struggling with the idea of equity, diversity, and inclusion. And they were saying, you know, we have created policy and strategy upon strategy over the last several years, but nothing really seems to have changed in our organization. Um, and, you know, we have recruited more Um, black and uh, Asian people into our organization. We've recruited more people from Eastern Europe into our organization. We've got more women being promoted in our organization than we've ever had before. And we've got, you know, LGBTQ is a, is a, a standard accepted uh, thing and celebrated within our organization. But when we look at the outcomes, nothing's changed. Nothing has changed in our organization. We still struggle with the same things. Uh, we, we don't have a significant improvement in our bottom line, in our performance or our profits. Um, so is it all nonsense? Is it all nonsense to this whole idea of equity, diversity and inclusion? Does it really work? And of course, you know, if you, there was a tweet that I saw from Elon Musk who said that EDI must die. So he's, It's a play on the mnemonic, really. EDI must die, D-I-E. And at first glance, I was quite upset when he said that. 
but then I, I sort of look beyond because, of course, Elon Musk is an incredibly intelligent and powerful person, and 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 can be quite contentious. Um, but I think he does it to create controversy around issues that then need deeper thinking. Uh, and when I reread it several times over, this one simple tweet, I thought to myself, maybe Elon Musk gets it. Maybe we have put so much emphasis on EDI in the context of, uh, as I've described it, representations, targets, performances, and and some of the language that we have, but we're not actually putting any 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 uh, sort of real effort into the change of culture. And there is the the crux of the uh, problem that this one senior leader, I think, was experiencing in their organisation. Yes, it put a lot of effort into, you know, having a rainbow of demographic diversity in their organisation, but they hadn't really allowed for that change of demography to transform the conversations in their organisations. So the issue, the blockage, if you like, or the challenge, if you like, or the obstacle, if you like, still existed in that in that organisation. And the, for me, that challenge, that obstacle, that blockage was culture. This is why, you know, I created this podcast. This podcast, in, by the way, you know, it's going to be two years old. Uh, I'm recording this episode for you on the 1st of January, 2024. We actually started this podcast on the 4th of January, if I remember right, 2022. So, this is another reason why I wanted to record this pod, this this particular episode for you to go out to because I want to celebrate the two years, two years of speaking to incredible guests from around the world, people who are at the top end of what they do, whether it's in business, whether it's in in, in education or defence or military or police or psychology. Everybody who has come on this podcast gets in; they understand, and in the context of culture. They understand that creating the right culture is about creating a human-centered leadership culture. Human-centered leadership, for me, I believe, is the way forward. And conceptually, it sounds very, very simple. What is human-centered leader? It's about focusing in on your people. Yes, it is, but it's far more than that for me. That's why I drove this brand so hard when I, when I first you know, uh, launched this. And this year for me, you know, we, <laughs> we often talk about New Year's resolutions, don't we, at this time of the year. And uh, I don't know if you've got a New Year's resolution yourself. And I know I tend not to have New Year's resolutions because they are tend to be, you know, made up on the spur of the moment and therefore they don't really have any depth to them. And consequently, they end up being a bit weak, don't they? And uh, yeah, you, you might find yourself going to the gym or eating all the right food for a couple of weeks and then after that it gets a bit boring. So so I've, what I've done this year is I've set a couple of key strategies and key, key goals for me to achieve this year. Uh, and one of those goals is around the, the concept of the passion that I have for human-centered leadership. Uh, and my definition, if you like, of human-centered leadership, aside from the obvious that it's a focusing on the people in your organization or the people that you connect with, um, my specific passion or contribution, if you like, is about creating emotionally intelligent cultures. It's as simple as that. Creating cultures where we have greater empathy, building trusts, having a values-based 
process or philosophy in our organization where people are held to account uh, based on their values or, or, or acting out the values of the organization and individually. It is about having that increased self-awareness of every single person in the organization, people who really understand themselves. They've put that hard work in to understand who they are, how they show up and what they need to change as a consequence of that. I've done this work on myself for best part of 15, 20 years now. As soon as I had that realization that self-awareness was so critical in leadership uh, and it has served me well over those years. So it's about all of that. But fundamentally, emotional intelligence is all about having the ability to build powerful relationships. Now, if you think about human-centered leadership in the context of emotional intelligence, can you imagine having an organization where people are building relationships with each other, levels in the organizations are building quality relationships with each other, and as a consequence of that, you have an increase in trust. When you have an organization that has a basis, a strong basis of trust in that organization, magic can happen. Patrick Lenciani talks about this in his book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Now, this is a great book. If you've not read it, I absolutely recommend this book to you. And the best version of that book for me is an audio book. And I'll, I'll explain why in a short while. But this book taught me so much. So the whole book is set in a fictional environment. And I love the way that he does this. He creates this fictional environment. It's centered around an executive team, a newly formed executive team that is having some problems. Uh, and by playing this, uh, this executive team's story out, what he comes up with are the five dysfunctions of any executive team. Now, actually, the learning can apply to any team, any organization. He uses an executive team. And I have used that philosophy, the five dysfunctions, on many a time when I'm coaching executive team members. In fact, right now, I'm working with an executive team that is not performing as well as it could. There are fractious relationships in that team. Uh, uh, there, are, so there are some issues around trust within that team. So I've basically... Um, Put all my co every coaching that I'm doing, every bit of workshop that I'm doing, every bit of psychometric test that I'm doing is centered around these five dysfunctions. So I'm teasing these out. Uh, and the reason why it's such a why it's so good as an audiobook is because it's telling you a story. And I just I listened to this uh, as I was driving my car, and it was a book that I, you know, metaphorically couldn't put down because it was just a great story. But the learning that comes out of it is, is, is phenomenal. And when I talk about human-centered leadership and talk about cultures, creating those emotionally intelligent cultures, the word trust keeps coming back to me over and over and over again. And Petra Lenciani also talks about trust as being foundational. And I absolutely recommend that you get the book, but I'm just going to give you a bit of a snippet of that book and try and cover that book in a, a few minutes. And I can't do it any justice because it is so good. But he talks about trust as being the foundational um, dysfunction. For those teams that aren't performing, when you drill down, you find that there's an absence of trust. An absence of trust is where people don't have good relationships with each other. They don't understand each other. They don't know each other at a human level. They don't. 
they haven't shared their vulnerabilities with each other. You know, it's a case of have they, have, are you in a team where you don't even have conversations about what's going on in each other's lives, et cetera, et cetera. It is knowing each other at a human level, including your vulnerabilities, not just your strengths, um, without all that sort of facade of competition that we often put us out, put ourselves, put around ourselves in these competitive work environments, shedding that, uh, that facade and being real, being authentic. And we hear this an awful lot around the whole concept of authenticity and being real. But this is why we need to do it, to create this, this foundation, solid foundation of trust. Because when you have trust, then you can go on to the next issue that Heath says is missing in many dysfunctional teams. When you don't have trust, you have this inability or this reluctance, if you like, for people to engage in uh, conflict debates, in, 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 in these conflict conversations that we often talk about. Now, when we think about conflict conversations, often we talk about them as being something that we'd rather avoid. They're not comfortable. They're very uncomfortable. Uh, and obviously, uh, and, and, and often they can be seen to be as contentious, as uh, sort of, you know, butting of heads, et cetera, et cetera. But Patrick Lenziani says, actually, they are incredibly useful. You know, imagine the last time that you went to some kind of a meeting where a subject came up that needed a decision made, being made around the table. You had your view, but a lot of loud people in that meeting were pushing this one singular view. And you may even have thought that they had some kind of an agenda, and they may have. And because there was such a noise around this one thing, you tried several times to get your voice heard, and it was you felt you weren't being listened to. So eventually you gave up. And then you walk away from that meeting and somebody asks you, hey, how did that meeting go? What are you likely to say? Oh, that meeting was awful. Oh, is this, it was that. Now, a decision was made in that meeting. And Patrick Lenciani says that if when you've been to that meeting, you feel like that, then the next, the third level of dysfunctionality is this level of commitment. So if you have a meeting where, you know, the, con the, the, the conflict conversation wasn't a healthy conflict, it wasn't a healthy debate. Not everybody was involved or allowed to be involved. Not everybody had the opportunity to contribute. When you are in those situations, then the third dysfunctionality pops up. And the third dysfunctionality is around commitment. The level of commitment that everybody around the table will have to that specific issue that's been agreed upon. Now, theoretically, we can all say, hey, yeah, you know, when a decision is made, whether I agree with it or not, when we leave this room, we know it's the right thing to all of us be, be behind this decision 100%. We saw this in the UK in the 2016 um, referendum on Brexit, you know, uh, something like 48% against 52% in the country. So it's almost like a half, half and half divide. And it led to some very tortuous conversations and arguments. But the decision was made and everyone needed to get behind that decision, no matter what their original viewpoint was. But we struggled with that in the UK. Why? Because there's a dysfunctionality. There was this lack of debate, this lack of healthy conflict, conflict and debate. So he says, you know, when we don't, when we walk away from these, we're not all going to be wholly committed to this, this, this piece of change that we're bringing forward. And we actually see this an awful lot in organizations. If you think back 
to all the big changes that have failed in your organization. Think back to what happened. Somewhere at the highest level, this decision was made. But when it petered down into that critical senior leadership sort of band, if those senior leaders weren't on board, what would happen is that they would then dilute that message knowingly or uh, unknowingly. They would dilute that message. So by the time the message gets down to the ground floor where the change needs to happen, you get a diluted version, if anything at all, around that change. And he says, and when you get that lack of commitment from everyone, then you get the fourth dysfunctionality. The fourth dysfunctionality is where we fear holding each other to account. So the next meeting that you go to, John is reluctant to ask Lucy what she did on the actions that she said she was going to undertake because John knows that that could fall back on him as well. Lucy could put a mirror up to him uh, because he knows that he hasn't fully uh, put any effort into the actions that he took. So, so this lack of accountability leads to the five, fifth dysfunctionality, which is inattention to detail. And the way I read that is that everyone seems to move off in these silo mentalities. Everyone sort of moves in the right direction, but they're not quite in the right direction. They might be like one degree off or two degrees off. So that for me is five dysfunctions of a team in a, in a bit of a snapshot. But this is the kind of culture that we need to overcome in our organizations. And the, in order to, to create these five functionalities, healthy functionalities in our organizations and our teams, we need to have this, uh, this whole understanding of what EDI means. Uh, for me, it's about the cognitive diversity. It's about creating cultures where everyone feels heard, seen, valued, and appreciated. It's about being having oodles of empathy and trust in your organization where you know, um, where people can have empathy with different levels of the organisation and understand what, what might be going on at that level. Um, it is about being people-focused and taking that leap of faith to understand that if we focus in on our people, the quality and the performance will look after itself. But it takes a huge leap of faith, particularly when you've been in an organisation that has always been matrix-driven, it's all been about performance matrices and bottom lines and percentages and so forth and so on. KPIs have, have been the way that we've always managed in this, this organization or this industry. It takes a huge leap of faith. But when you do start looking after your people, then we can overcome things like the great resignation, the huge talent leakage that goes on, uh, that has been going on across organizations and industries for the last two or three years, the quiet quitting where people just don't want to work beyond their minimum standard and therefore you're not getting the best out of your people, or the, the masses of industrial action that we've seen, what I call loud quitting, which is far more than just about pay. It's about pay and conditions. And it's the conditions part that we often don't focus in on. That change, that transformation that is required in our culture. I met with a police officer the other day from my old police force, and she was a, a great police officer. I remember her when I was in there. And she was saying, you know, I'm thinking about leaving in the next two years. She said, I've got, yeah, I could stay here for another 10, 15 years, but it's not where I want to be now anymore. You know, I don't feel that I'm able to contribute or that it's moving forward. And I want to leave. And some study has shown in the UK that a third of all police officers in the UK are thinking of leaving the police service. I mean, that's incredible when you think about it. 
And that's not just in the police service. There's some work done around dentists. There's work done around nursing. There's work done around education. There are so much research out there that says that what we're doing right now is not working. So we need to do something different. We need to do something different. And for me, human-centered leadership is the way forward. And this year, my, if you like, resolution or goal or strategy or commitment is that I'm going to push human-centered leadership out strongly. So this year, I'm really, really excited to announce that on the 26th of March at the Millennium Point uh, uh, Conference Centre in Birmingham, we're going to have our first ever human-centered leadership conference. I'm so excited. I'm very, very nervous because it's going to be a big conference. We're expecting 350 people in person and perhaps a, another similar number online because the live streaming facilities are amazing, by the way, in there. So um, we have got some of the top speakers from top organisations and industries. industries. But it, uh, these are people who absolutely understand the importance of creating human-centred leadership cultures uh, wherever you are. They, they, they can be because they will drive. They are the future of the workplace certainly in the UK, and I'm convinced around the world, this is what it's all about. In 2020, what happened was that people recalibrated. We had that very unique and very rare opportunity to stop, think, and recalibrate our priorities. We were so close to death in the context of the, uh, the Aslo, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We were so close to the bottom line. Everybody came tumbling back down to the basic uh, needs of safety and security that we recalibrated and a lot of us redefined the way we want to engage in the workplace. And for me, human-centered leadership is all about that as well. It is about understanding the complexity of the human beings that come into our organization and say, how can we create the very best culture? And by doing that, by having more cognitive diversity in our organization, how does that help us in an incredibly rapidly changing world? Well, creativity and innovation. If we're going to stuck, be stuck in the groupthink mentality or the echo chambers that we used to have, that we've always had, then we're always going to find it difficult to change and be agile in the, in the challenges and changing environment that we find ourselves in, in this VUCA world. So cognitive diversity is all about that. So the conversations at the Human Centered Leadership Conference in March 2024 are going to be incredible. I'm really, really super excited about it. We've got some top people. Um, I'm going to be releasing information on the, probably uh, through the podcast a lot more. Uh, so you probably have like uh, a lot more episodes from me as we build up to the Human Centered Leadership Conference. But also I should be announcing it on LinkedIn. So if you're not connected with me on LinkedIn, please find me on LinkedIn, uh, connect with me. Uh, that's where all the information and updates on the incredible Human Centered Leadership Conference is going to be all about. I shall be informing you of uh, some of the speakers, doing some sort of background, uh, uh, providing some background information on each one of the speakers as we announce them. Trust me, they are like top-end people. These are people who really do get it, and they've been in the trenches, so to speak, when it comes to leadership. Uh, I hope you are able to join us at the Human Centered Leadership Conference. It will be an absolute pleasure. And I'm so excited that after two years of having this podcast, we're actually doing a conference. And I've got something even more exciting than that. At the conference, we will be announcing a fan fantastic brand new program called the Human Centered Leadership Program, where you are able to either attend as a leader or, uh, you know, send uh, your your 
your mid, mid-level leaders too. And uh, I am just in discussions with the CMI to get this level seven accredited. So they walk away with substantial accreditation from this program and qualifications. All of this is happening this year. And that's just around human-centered leadership. I'm so excited. I can't wait for 2024. I think the last few years since 2020 have been a bit weird, haven't they? If we're, if we're honest, and they have been for me. Um, you know, the first couple of years were like a lot of anxiety. I felt the anxiety. I, I felt the anxiety in other people. 2023 for me was like going back into the real world in this changed environment. But 2024, it's like supercharging going forward now. And I'm doing some scary stuff. <laughs> I'm doing some really scary stuff, but it's great to have you on the journey with me. So thank you so much for support, supporting me over the last couple of years. Hopefully you continue to support us into 2024. And hopefully I actually get to meet people in person who've listened to this podcast at the Human Centered Leadership Conference in March on the 26th at the Millennium Point, Birmingham. Take care. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content. And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care. Have a great day.